0: So, hello, everybody. Um, This is yet another of our events that we organize around the yearbook. Some of you might have come to the nice session on cartoons yesterday. It was really nice. Um, Today, a a major theme of this year's yearbook is the role of global civil society and democracy. And the chapter on democracy promotion was written by Armin. Ishkanian and she's going to be our first speaker Um, and after her we've got, oh you're coming last are you Danielle? I'm
1: coming
0: last. Oh you're coming last. (laughs) Oh I've got it here. So which order are you going to be?
2: Damien. Damien. Okay
0: sorry about that everybody. (laughs) Um, So the first speaker we've got is Daniele Archipugi, who some of you may have heard of from his work together with me and David Held on cosmopolitan democracy. And he's now a professor at Birkbeck, but also, like all Italians, he's got several jobs. And um, then we'll have Armin, and finally we'll have, no, then we'll have Ian. And Ian uh, used to work for the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, which is the British government's democracy promotion arm. Uh, But he was also part of the United Nations mission in Kosovo and wrote a book called Peace at Any Price, How the World Failed Kosovo, which is actually going to be very relevant at the moment. (laughs) So we'll start. So Daniele, over to you.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me in this panel. I'm very happy to be back here. And uh, uh, actually, I, I was one of the participants to the first uh, brainstorming, discussing the idea of a global civil society yearbook. At the time, there was quite a lot of debate, controversy. So, and later on, uh, I spent a full year at the Center for the Study of Global Governance. I shared an office with Fiona and she hasn't recorded it yet. But... Uh, <laughs> And uh, let me say that I read with great interest the, uh, the chapters uh, which uh, uh, are in, uh, in the yearbook uh, devoted to uh, democracy and how, what we can do in order to support democracy. And unfortunately, I agree with most of it. And therefore, my position as a critical discussant is a bit difficult, but I will try to do my best and I will attack the yearbook from the right and from the left, and you can decide which side is that. Uh, First of all, let me start to say that uh, this yearbook uh, doesn't address at all in this occasion uh, the argument which is most important uh, today in the debate. If we go out in the street, unless you meet some very elaborated LSE students, but I mean, let's say you move a couple of blocks away from the LSE, and you ask, what do you think about exporting democracy? The majority of people will think, what do you mean? I mean, should Iraq and Afghanistan and so on? Because, in fact, the greatest perception about exporting democracy today is not the sort of things which many people did Uh, In the years of the Cold War, for example, when Mary and I met, which was never intended to be something as a war, but was intended to to export democracy through dialogue, conversations, uh, pressures, activities, and so on. Today, George Bush and Tony Blair managed to be dominant in the political agenda also because they're taking into account one very specific form to export democracy, and this very specific form is the form which is true warfare. And therefore, we are in the very uh, controversial situation in which, on the one hand, many people do consider the aim entirely satisfactory. Democracy today has no enemies or at least much less enemies than it used to be. On the other hand, many people do object to the methods which have been employed and actually i would like to start with something which should somehow be remembered and namely that after the end of the second world war when a variety of countries including the country where i was born and where i live managed to return to get democracy after a war but since one thousand nine hundred and forty five there is no record that there is no record that A military intervention is leading to any form of democracy. And uh, indeed, uh, what has been found out by people working at the Academy Endowment for Peace, which I wouldn't say is a particularly left-wing or anti-American institution, is that only two countries uh, managed to get democracy as a consequence of a media intervention. These two countries are Panama and Granada. Both of them very small. Both of them easily controlled by a variety of instruments, including uh, including, uh, trade blocks or whatever it is. And in the case of Panama, with a very high toll in terms of human life, about... uh, and according to estimates, 1,500 to 5,000 people got killed when George Bush, the senior, did the intervention to remove Noriega from power. And we know of quite a lot of failures in other, in other cases, and also in small countries which were somehow more reluctant to, to get controlled. And the situation is even worse if we look at what is happening today, because it seems quite clear that neither Afghanistan nor Iraq, the countries which are absorbing at the moment most of Western resources, are democratic. It seems that in cases like Bosnia and Kosovo, and we will hear more from you, of course, has managed to be stable democracies, and the ritual of democracy, elections which we rightly consider essential in all countries, have become more and more an element of division rather than an element of decide which which the government, which government should, be, should be appointed. And that, I think, I mean, if we look at quite a lot of, the, of elections which have been organized in countries either under military occupation, such as Afghanistan or Iraq, or countries which were torn by civil wars the results of the elections were entirely predictable on the ground of ethnic statistics and therefore you know they didn't manage to find out anything more and that's, I mean, it's quite traditional. I mean, we know that uh, democracy, uh, Pericles uh, already uh, taught us that democracy implies that majorities majority is minorities change over time, that you can move yourself, that those who are in power govern in the interest of everybody and not in the interest of your, their own faction. If you don't have these sort of things, uh, elections might even become an element of division rather than an element of union. Moreover, I would say that we are forgetting what these interventions managed to get in other countries. For example, if you take into account the so-called rough states, the states of the axis of Erbil and so on, all of them are today seeking protection through nuclear weapons. I mean, the story in developing countries is quite clear. If Saddam Hussein would have managed to smuggle one single atomic bomb, he would have been safe, and therefore, you know. Uh, is increasing uh, the the, the total stability. And uh, for those who like quantitative evidence, uh, I would like to show this data collected by the Polity 4 database which shows how the number of democracies are, uh, actually, how the the regimes across countries have evolved since 1946. Countries are divided into three categories, uh, autocracies, democracies and uh, intermediate category. And uh, Of course, the growth is associated to the increasing number of states which followed the decolonization process, where quite a lot of new states were formed, which used to be former colonies. And you clearly see that with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the number of democracies has substantially increased. That, I think, is a wave of democracy, not something else, as other scholars would argue. And then you see what has happened in 2003. For the first time since 1945, the number of democracies appeared to fall dramatically. So, and that's, it's not, it's not only a consequence of Iraq or Afghanistan, it's a much wider consequence, which was taken elsewhere. So the conclusion is very simple. I think that if you take into account what started the war, and if you take into account how invaders are perceived in the public opinion and if there is a fabric endogenous fabric for democracy which somehow existed it was latent in Eastern European countries while it was not, not yet existing in many developing countries and that's an argument that uh, Armenia will uh, take in her book you really find out that uh, all these failures are clearly predictable Moreover, there is a typical question which I think I'm entitled to raise because of my ethnicity between means and ends. In other words, if the aim of democracy is discussed and was achieved through non-democratic means, it's very clear that people are not going to trust it. And that's what the lesson that we have learned. But of course, the yearbook is presenting another picture. And it's presenting the picture in in several chapters, in Mary's chapter and, of course, and also in past editions. It's presenting the picture of a population which would like to at least get self-government would like to be involved in the appointment of rulers, would like to have their rights respected, and which under dictatorships, which is not, is not a dictatorship and not an argument of conversation, because we have to deal with Iraq and Afghanistan, under, under the dictatorships would like to, to, be, to, be, to be more active. And therefore, what is the sort of answer that people who already ruled through democracy should give, for example, to. Movements that we have experienced in, in, uh, in Burma recently and, and everywhere. And I th- it seems to me that uh, uh, in, uh, the, your chapter, I mean, if I can, if I can tell that, uh, is very much stressing the endogenous fabric. You know? And that, I think, also your chapter is very much endo- stressing the endogenous fabric. And I think they have very good reason to do that very good reason to do that because uh, without an endogenous fabric there is no external intervention which will pull, uh, will pull uh, the rule in one way or the other but uh, let me also say that uh, I start and then you decide if this is going to be right-wing or left-wing I start to be also somehow skeptical about the carrots not just about the sticks of military interventions which of course are ineffective but also about, about, the, about the carrots I mean, uh, uh, I've I've singled out uh, some uh, photos uh, of elections which have captured my attention over, over, this is Palestine, this is Iran, this is, uh, I think, Sierra Leone, and so on. But, I mean, uh, the the basic point uh, is that even when a global civil society in the West, uh, where civil society is, of course, stronger, has more resources, and, and so on, tries to generate help into the, into the countries which are under uh, dictatorships and so on, it does it by using its own instruments. And I wonder to what extent this is compatible with the very nature of democracy. Uh, let me explain. I mean, we are dealing in a typical case where muscles are not equal, And when you have rich and powerful democracies, often uh, through uh, various uh, 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 well-founded institutions, uh, some of them them associated to political parties, for example, the National Endowment of Democracy, which uh, is, I would say, the the secular arm of the Republican Party, but also other institutions which are more progressive and and open-minded than some, which somehow try to impose uh, one view of democracy on one view of organizational society towards developing countries. And that also creates some problems. And therefore I would say, what the acid test to know when we we are imposing one view of democracy on another? The first thesis that I would like to to support is that democracy cannot be exported, it can be only imported. What can somehow be exported is self-government. And I think this is a crucial distinction. In other words, you should allow people to decide which sort of government they would like and also somehow to be associated, to accept that people in other parts of the world would be able to be, for example, ruled by theocracy. I don't like theocracy, but if I will find out a general election which will appoint a theocratic government, I think somehow I should accept it. And maybe I should use uh, uh, persuasion uh, as an instrument. Uh, maybe I should also foster uh, uh, some uh, uh, alternative movements, encourage alternative movements. But still, we have got here a basic problem. The basic problem is that uh, we, are not, we cannot uh, uh, decide what's going to be a, a form of government and you know, of the community. We can only decide that they should have a choice to choose. That's, and that, therefore, this is, is, is self-determination. And uh, I would also say that there is a very basic uh, test in order to know what's the predisposition of Western countries. And this basic test is to what extent uh, we are prepared uh, to suggest, uh, to propose a form of democracy to other countries, uh, but to what extent we are also able to submit to the same rules of democracy once uh, once, uh, these countries uh, have somehow a formal democratic government. I'm here making an opposition between the internal sources of legitimacy and the international sources of legitimacy. So far, a large part of the debate has focused on democratization. As if the problem of democracy would be a problem within democratic states. Your colleagues in the field of international relations will continue to discuss the hypothesis about democratic peace, for example. Democracies do not fight each other. What does it mean? if you buy this hypothesis, that if all countries of the world will be democratic, also one major problem of contemporary international relations, war, will be abolished. And therefore, this is somehow pulling always on the internal level rather than to the national level. I think we should also act, and maybe merely act, on the international level. And I wonder, Are democratic countries, are those who are really pushing for democracy inside as a solution solution of uh, the respect of human rights uh, prepared uh, to obey and to apply the same rules of democracy also in the international sphere? And uh, in that case, uh, I think there are some good doubts to do that. But there are some also good examples. And one good example, I think... uh, Is very close, even if maybe the United Kingdom is less close than other countries, and it is the European Union. If we look at the European Union, one of the fundamental characteristics of the European Union, which at least in two different periods over its evolution, over its march, from six original member countries to 27 member countries, was precisely to achieve democratization, and push very much to stabilise in the first in the southern Europe, in Spain, Portugal and Greece, and more recently in Eastern, European, in Eastern Europe, and in both cases there was a strong incentive to this country to decide stabilise your democracy, get some human rights somehow, and then you will get into the club of the European Union. But once this Member countries are accepted, they start to acquire equal rights uh, than all the others. You can be a new member country, you can be a very old member country, whatever it is, uh, once you are a member of the European Union, you get uh, the equal rights. And that somehow is also the reason why some new countries such as Turkey, which do not have a democratic regime, uh, might create uh, some problems uh, to do this sort of things. So I would like to, to just oppose uh, two ways uh, of... Uh, of exporting democracy somehow the first one we know about, the second one is a bit more pragmatic but uh, I mean I would, uh, I would start, I mean I think that the, the, the reason to, to understand to clarify what's happening in countries like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq has anybody offered to these countries to become the 28th or 29th member of the European Union or even worse the 51st and the 52nd members of the United States if that's not happening, there are some good reasons to doubt seriously about uh, the intention of those who wish to promote democracy. Thank you very
4: much.
0: Um, thank you very much, Daniele. I think we were perhaps a bit too subtle, because the whole point of this book was meant to be a critique of the military approach to exporting democracy and actually we have three things not just the military approach and the money approach but the communicative approach and that is the message (laughs) of our yearbook. The other thing I wanted to say because I think it's quite nice to have a dialogue as we go along (laughs) what you want me to show it (laughs) sorry communicative power (laughs) Um, is that actually my position is not Endogenous, rather it is that nowadays what's endogenous is also global. You don't make an internal, external division. And there are nice democratic endogenous people, but what we discovered in our picture of illiberal regimes is the problem nowadays is not so much that the governments crack down on nice democratic people, although they do, but there are also some rather nasty people who are linked into the <laughs> fundamentalists, economic globalisers, and all the rest, uh, which help to sustain those regimes. So I think we don't. So that was the other point I'm making. But we'll keep the dialogue going. And I, I, I shouldn't talk anyway. I should let Ian come next.
5: Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Government by the people, of the people, for the people which gets by with a little help from some friends. There's uh, something paradoxical about external democracy promotion. It's like uh, Invisible ink or, or, um, or a charm offensive. has the quality of an oxymoron about it. Supporting democratic development is not like normal uh, development aid or even governance support. It's about proffering people a system of government which proffers them power, even though some of them might not want it. External actors can have a serious influence on domestic politics. That's why many long-established democracies... Outlaw foreign funding of political parties. Yet these same democracies, which include Britain, are often offering money and advice to political parties elsewhere. Now, I'm going to argue that uh, these democracies are right, and democracy promotion is, by and large, a good thing. But anybody who shares that opinion (coughs) has to accept there are some awkward questions to be answered. The first thing to say in defence of democracy promotion is that we're not actually talking about democracy democracy. We're talking about representative democracy and its different representative democracy doesn't mean everybody has an equal say it means everybody has an equal opportunity to have a say some people take that opportunity more than others they get involved, they become activists they deliver leaflets, they stand for election to the local council they get really into really small issues that you and I might find boring or maybe actually we do find quite interesting but they they attend the meetings and they do do, do the paperwork someone once said that 90% of politics is just being there because being there puts you ahead of the vast majority of people who, who aren't there, they just don't turn up So probably the most popular theory of what you might call micro-external democracy promotion as opposed to the macro version which you're hearing on the the George Bush side um, is that you identify the small minority of active people, make sure they have the resources they need to be active, and then representative democracy will improve if you help them with more resources, generally money or training, so they can do more of their activities. What this means in practice is that we identify key actors in society whose active presence strengthens the democratic fabric and who can benefit from these resources. It means finding key civil society groups, NGOs which might be committed to promoting women or tackling corruption or cleaning up rubbish. It means helping the election process through funds for the electoral commission or training or sending in election monitors. It can mean helping the media, local radio or newspapers, especially new and non-mainstream media which brings politics to people who wouldn't usually have access to it or media which is being hampered by a host government. And most controversially, it means helping certain political parties. External democracy promotion of this sort amounts to patching up the democratic feedback loop. That means the local media report more of what's happening. NGOs can respond properly because they hear it through the media of the issues which arise. Political parties can then form policies on them, react in turn to the NGOs and the media. And when the election comes, with an improved election system, election commission and so forth, the voting process is more likely to be free and fair. In theory, everything improves. That's the theory, and it's the approach adopted by most of the mainstream and by that, uh, basically Western um, democracy promoters in the US, in the EU, EU, and here in the UK. And there are three arguments often put against it. First, that it's in some ways counterproductive because it divides community groups from the communities they're meant to serve. NGOs start looking to foreign funders rather than the grassroots that they were established to help in the first place. Second, that it tilts elections one way or another according to who has the best foreign backers, not who's best. And third, that there's something intrinsically wrong, almost unnatural, about interfering with a democracy. The first of these two are serious objectives which can be avoided only by good practice. Now, I'll explain what that is in a minute. And I'll explain why the third we can dismiss. Taking each in turn, first, that external democracy promotion distracts activists from their grassroots... Well, when you're offering money, yes, there is a danger of creating spoof NGOs which exist purely to claim the democracy dollar. And there's also a danger of established NGOs becoming too well established, no longer serving their local needs, and becoming institutions pushing their own institutional interests. We need to make sure that democracy promotion adds to the political class rather than displacing it. The remedy to this danger is astute funding. The programme officers and democracy promoters with cash at at the local level, the local level, the ground level, Need to check the credentials of the people they fund. They need to visit the communities and be alive to new trends, ready to switch funding nimbly. For this reason, good democracy promotion is, not, is going to have high overheads. Democracy promotion is not like famine relief. Administration needs to be a significant proportion of total costs to do the job properly. Otherwise, you don't have that vital vigilance. Trying to give all your money to the NGOs on the front line is a false economy, because you won't have the capacity to pick the right ones. The second argument against external democracy promotion is that it tilts the playing field. The parties which get the funding do best, whether or not they're the best parties. Well, this argument ignores the fact that the playing field is already tilted. In many statist regimes, which are only superficially democratic, you find the government party has a massive organisational advantage over its competitors. Helping opposition parties or upstart NGOs in these situations is not so much levelling the playing field as releasing them from handcuffs. Usually in practice there's an extra complication. Countries with governments uh, which have the large, largest inbuilt advantage tend to be the ones where it's hardest for democracy promoters from outside to operate. Heavy-handed governments often insist on getting their own fair share of support as a condition for being allowed to operate in their country. And so you find all the, large, all the largest democracy promotions, demo- promoters, the American National Democratic Institute, the uh, IRI, the International Republican Institute, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy here, and the myriad of generally smaller democracy promoters within Europe go out of their way to be seen as neutral. Even NDI and IRI, which have clear ideological links to the US Democrats and Republicans respectively, offer training to parties right across the political spectrum. The exceptions to this, the parties they don't help, are Islamists and communists. The American Democracy Foundation steer well clear of them. Sometimes they're mandated by Congress not to even talk to them. The massive intervention in Italian politics in the mid-40s which successfully stopped communists from being elected, involving hundreds of thousands of Italian-Americans writing back to their families, scaring them from the red peril, probably kept Italy democratic. And nowadays the US is actively not helping, carefully chosen words, Islamists gain power, um, especially in the more moderate Middle Eastern countries like Egypt and Jordan. Now you can argue with that view, and personally I think there are some examples of moderate Islamic Islamists committed to democracy, but there's certainly a logic to it. External democracy promotion is all about tilting the playing field against people who are against democracy. And so it should be. The third argument is that the whole process of democracy promotion is misconceived. Political actors need to struggle in their own environment to adapt to it. Anything which interferes with this process, goes the argument, slows down the Darwinian winnowing of good from bad, which leaves countries with the most adaptive politics and the most suitable politicians. It's a self-government argument, basically. And it's an argument which is rather like a very similar argument often put about by free marketeers. The free market can solve everything, they say. And government interference, regulations and subsidies merely creates distortions, delaying the market's inevitable progress towards equilibrium. Well, airlines are one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world. If we drop the regulations overnight, uh, most of the airplanes would still fly. People would hear about the ones which crashed and avoid those airlines in future, providing a market incentive for airlines to maintain their feet properly and fly safely. The market would indeed lead to safe airlines, just like regulation. The difference is that it would probably lead to lots of deaths en route. Far better to take a shortcut to the best solution, and that means regulation. It's the same with democracy, except here the stakes are much higher. You can leave your fledgling democracy, the Weimar Republic say, to take its own course, hoping it eventually reaches democracy without caring what it goes through to get there. Or you could take your fledgling democracy, the Federal Republic of Germany say, and make sure it becomes a sustainable, secure democracy before you leave it. Compare the history of the Weimar Republic and the Federal Republic, and there's an extremely good example that hands-on external democracy promotion, in this unfair example at least, was both effective and good. So the theory suggests that external democracy promotion can be a good good thing. Unfortunately, it's hard to measure just how effective it can be. There's too much going on in most democracies to be able to pick out good outcomes from from external support. But there are anecdotes, and these tell us how best we should go about promoting democracy. In Kosovo, for example, donors fell over themselves to support key pillars of democracy in the province. Everybody wanted to fund the first Albanian-language TV station, for example. Fixing the sewers was probably more important, but much harder to fund. When Kosovo had its first elected assembly with 120 elected representatives, in the first four months alone, the international community had arranged more than 120 different training sessions for them they were offered more lectures than the average student in full-time education. When these representatives found some of the first training uh, sessions they they went to told them things they already knew, they saw little point in turning up to the rest. One final anecdote, sometimes democracy promoters offer incentives, small cash payments to people who attend training sessions. The trouble with these incentives is that they encourage people to attend for the wrong reasons, and sometimes the wrong people attend entirely. And if few people would attend without these payments... Does that mean the training is no good, or that they just don't know how good it is yet? It certainly raises questions. So, for democracy promotion to be effective, it needs to be high quality, well-coordinated within the international community, tightly targeted, nimble rather than large, and well thought through. That's what can make democracy promotion effective, and when it is effective, it's usually a good thing. Thank you.
0: Ian I think we're gonna get a rather more critical perspective from Armin. Mm-hmm.
2: I'd like to just briefly summarize what um, I've written in the chapter since this is associated with the yearbook's launch before moving on to talk about what's happening in the former Soviet sphere, um, focusing a lot on what's happening in Russia because that seems to affect the region as a whole. Um, the key points I raise in this chapter Um, the question I was looking at is why democracy promotion became so big after 1989 and why civil society organizations were targeted. And I was focusing on economic, not the George Bush military interventions, because that wasn't happening at least in the early 90s. And I examined various approaches, the U.S., um, EU, U.N., and also non-state actors. And clearly there are differences. The U.S., I would say, has the most has and has had the most euphoric approach um, believing in this Tocquevillian, Neo-Tocquevillian version that um, with a strong civil society, you'll have a strong democracy. And to go back to Ian's Weimar Republic example, the Weimar Republic actually had a very strong um, civil society, but it led to the rise of the Nazis. So it's not always very easy to correlate that. But even if we look at the US approach, even if we look at after 9 11, September 11th, the, the euphoria remains. I want to read a quote from um, one of the official democracy promoters. And he was speaking at the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He says, and this is how he describes NGOs and other civil society actors. He characterizes them as frontline fighters of freedom who have assisted a massive expansion in freedom and are the heirs of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Lech I don't know if everyone would agree that NGOs are fighters of freedom, but there's this perspective. Moving on from the U.S., if we look at the EU, there's there's been less of a focus on democracy promotion through civil society, through NGOs um, within the EU approach and the EU approach has focused more on targeting political parties and other um, more legislative frameworks. But interestingly, the the argument that the EU is a very good carrot, I think Danielle talked about that, is a bit problematic because beyond the EU, I mean, how, how far can the EU expand? How far can it grow? You can't include the entire world in the European Union. So I think that becomes a bit compromised. The U.N. um, approach, again, that's quite new, uh, began in 2003 through the United Nations Democracy Foundation. And there's been a lack of clarity in terms of the U.N.'s role as an international organization that respects the sovereignty of states and has various views on non-interference and democracy promotion, which is an active form of intervention. And finally... The the fourth set of actors are the foundations we've talked about, the the Westminster Foundation, the National Endowment for Democracy, and also private service contractors. In particular, the U.S. has funded many private service contractors to promote democracy. This is a bit problematic in my mind because these are not NGOs that sign up to codes of conduct. They are not held accountable in the same way other organizations are, and they are almost similar to private companies. So how can we trust these actors to promote democracy? And I think that is something that needs to be um, examined more, in more detail and hasn't been done so because there are issues around accountability and transparency, the privatization of democracy promotion. And so looking at all these varied approaches, then I asked what have been the outcomes and the achievements if we look worldwide we can say yes there's been a global associational revolution there has been a growth in the number of democracies but are we talking about substantive democracies or are we talking about formal democracies are we talking about democracies that are in democracies in name only that hold elections or are we talking about democracies where there is true participation and um, inclusion and there's emancipatory potential and I think um, Mary has touched upon this in her chapter with Denisa, is that sometimes often what we find are the formal democracies or what we're seeing in the former Soviet states are managed democracies and sovereign democracies. So how far can we stretch this term before it loses all meaning? And many challenges do remain because even if we look at Central and East Europe, yes, we have these states that have joined the EU, but do we really have – established democracies in this part of the world. And to move on, um, just in terms of explanations that have been given, I won't spend too much time on this, but what I found is that there have been two sets of explanations. Some have wanted to blame, as I say, you know, the recipients of aid, saying it's the cultural barriers, that the culture of the society isn't fit for democracy, while others have said the the historical legacy prevents democracy from taking hold. Um, The Soviet legacy argument is quite strong here. While others have talked about the problems with the policies of the implementers and what I call the genetic engineering argument, that some of the democracy promoters thought if we inject enough money and technical assistance, we'll have democracies spring up in a few years. The problem with that approach was that It led to many, many NGOs and elections, but it didn't lead to true democracy. And more recently, some of the problems with the implementers have been the double standards, the perceived and real double standards which have been applied to countries that are termed or called democracies and others which aren't, depending on whether they're considered allies or not and also the conflation of democracy promotion with regime change after Iraq and Afghanistan has also led to problems. So where are we today then? Because that was the 1990s up until about 2003, 2004. I would say today we're in a very dangerous position in terms of democracy promotion because if we look at the former Soviet Union, that region, and particularly Russia, what's happening um, the news isn't very good because after the color revolutions there was this expectation that what happened in Georgia and Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan would spread and democracies would be sprouting all over the world and so forth. Hillary Clinton Senators Hillary Clinton and John McCain nominated um, Saakashvili and Yushchenko for the Nobel Peace Prize saying there are these heroes, there are these wonderful actors and looking now, four years on, it's a bit more problematic to call these democracies, especially what happened in Georgia recently where there was a crackdown on um, the opposition groups where they were, uh, they were labeled by Saakashvili as being... Um, funded by foreign powers, Russia in this case, which is quite reminiscent of the arguments made by Putin of his own opposition, except he blames them for being funded by the West. So I wouldn't say we have democracies in any of the um, color revolutions. Perhaps it's still a process that's happening. The color revolutions also led to a backlash, a legislative backlash against civil society and in various political parties. Um, in that organizations that are more loyal to the regimes have been created, gongos, government-organized NGOs. And what we're seeing is a crackdown on foreign-funded NGOs and organizations that are more critical of the regimes. And we can see some of this being tied to how democracy was promoted. Um, And... One of the key ideas that has emerged in the past two years is this idea of sovereign democracy. And this is coming from Russia and spreading around the region. And what sovereign democracy means is that each country should decide what democracy is. And no one else has the right to tell what democracy is. The danger of such a relativistic approach to democracy is that how far can we stretch the term again before it loses all meaning? What we're also seeing in this part of the world, particularly, again, it's coming from Russia, is what I call perhaps a return to Cold War politics. Um, Russia will have parliamentary elections next month in December, and it's effectively through bureaucratic um, means managed to ban the OSE observers by um, saying your visa applications weren't correct and so forth. And perhaps we'll allow 50 and not 1,000 observers and so forth. There are all of these obstacles that are being put in the way. And the argument is that the West shouldn't meddle because Russian observers perhaps aren't coming to observe the U.S. elections. And um, according to the Russian Foreign Ministry, elections are our sovereign right and they are directed at strengthening democracy in our country. And they dismiss the cancellation of the OSCE mission as something which is not very important. A second uh, trend that's emerging uh, is this Russian Institute for Freedom and Democracy in Europe. So it's the Russian National Endowment for Democracy, we can say, which was announced at the recent EU-Russia summit in Portugal. And the purpose of this institute will be to monitor human rights and democracy in Western Europe, focusing on the following the Rights of Minorities and Immigrants, Racism and Xenophobia, Media Freedom, Elections and Electoral Systems in European Countries, and one of the aims will be to publish an annual report on how Europeans behave in practice when it comes to human and civil rights. So it's almost reminiscent of the Soviet-era peace foundations or peace um, organizations that were monitoring what was happening in the West. And so these trends are really raising questions about democracy and whether the democracy promotion efforts that so vigorously tried to buy democracy or to create democracy through the provision of grants and through the provision of um, trainings and paying people to attend trainings really had the intended effect or are we seeing the unintended consequences? And what we're also seeing, I, I would say these days, is are the arguments that the West isn't practicing what it preaches to others. And this is on the backdrop of the global war on terror, because if we look at um, the costs of the global war on terror through the lens of democracy promotion, what we find is that democracy in the West, in the U.S. and the U.K. has significantly suffered where civil liberties at times have been sacrificed for national security. And with the losses of civil liberties and with the losses of particular freedoms, it becomes harder and harder to argue that democracy is a strong value when um, governments such as Venezuela, such as China, such as Russia, will point and say, you're not practicing what you preach. So on that very depressing note I'll end and (laughs) open it up to discussion I guess
0: well thank you very much Armin who would like to ask a question I think there are people going around with mics I can't see very well
6: Thank you. You know, after seeing this uh, debate, I feel as if uh, West is very serious about promoting democracy in our region, maybe in our country, and they are not finding ways and means. And there is a serious, sincere discussion about engaging NGOs, engaging civil society, or giving incentives for democracy. But if I look at the things from my own side of view, because I have lived in dictatorship for 26 years, I think that West is not serious, sincere or considerate about promoting democracy in our region. And whenever there is a chance of promoting democracy, they side with the dictatorship because they have their own security interests or political interest or other interests. So my question to you is, can I buy democracy from you? Can I buy freedom for you? If not, you know, what should I do?
0: Who wants to answer that?
3: Uh, of course not and the answer is very clear is not I mean uh, no you should I mean uh, you mentioned quite rightly the inconsistencies uh, of the west uh, and that's a very good reason but uh, I mean you should not expect any, I mean I don't believe there is uh, any, any, uh, any society or a, any state which is a benevolent actor, genuinely interested in the development of other societies and uh, of course I mean uh, uh, Maybe we, we could have done more, but the, the first and wise advice, uh, try to mobilize your own resources. Of course, I mean, these resources can also put within other countries, but sometimes it is not very effective, and I, I, sh- I think that you have learned from your own skin better than anybody else.
4: So, you know, we have some opportunity you know, of the, the
6: argument of supporting the war against terror. You know. Now the dictator is saying the free media is, support, is not in favor of you know, this uh, war against terror and West agrees with that argument. The dictator says the Supreme Court is supporting the terrorists and West agrees with that. So how can we convince the West that we want to be democratic, we want to be free and please help us.
5: I, I used to work for the, um, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, and um, I have a great deal of sympathy with what you say. And often we would, when we were, we were working in what's essentially a small and geopolitically insignificant country, um, there wasn't much limit on what we could do. When we were working in a, a much bigger country, and you can just think of a few big countries which have geopolitical importance, um, one particular country in the east of Europe, which is very big and big. And going through to Euro 2008 <laughs> um, we had our hands very much, uh, very firmly tied um, and that's a difficulty um, but I wouldn't say that, that, that you can look at that which is definitely true and say therefore um, the West the Western powers put national security above democracy promotion um, at a top level they do but if you look at an individual level I think there are lots of individuals in the West who are deeply committed to democracy Uh, If you look at the reaction to the the monks in Burma um, just a a month or two ago, um, I think that was um, a a good source of optimism. Okay, maybe the the, the resources which were offered in in terms of support were pretty minimal, but it was was good to see the amount of sympathy which was generated by that. And the other thing to say is that um, it's not just all about states. I think if if Internet access, uh, media access in particular, um, gets into these countries, I think that, that can have a massive impact. Uh, on opening them up. Um, If you look at what happened in Eastern Europe in the 1980s, um, things like the way um, telecommunications in Eastern Europe in the 1980s, I, I think there's a strong argument, a very plausible argument, that had a massive impact on opening up those countries. And I think new media will have the same influence in these sort of countries in the future.
0: I think, if I may add something, and this is a point I make in my chapter... I think what you see in the West, in a way, are different versions of democracy. Um, on the one hand, there's a, what I suppose one could call, or I don't in the chapter, a top-down version, which is really dependent on the notion of procedures and the idea that governments become somehow respectable and legitimate because they've gone through a set of formal procedures. And on the other hand, there's a much more bottom-up view of democracy, which has to do with people's ability to shape their lives. And I think part of the problem is that the first view very much dominates governments and official promotion efforts, which is why my argument was it's not always the case, for instance, that military means fails, nor is it always the case that that money fails. But the truth is the only thing that really succeeds is people themselves demanding more democracy and that sometimes might be benefited, might be helped by money or even on occasion military means if the situation is very dire. But um, the real problem is that democracy promotion agencies don't often consult people on the ground about what's best they think they know how to do democracy I was very when I was in Iraq after the um, invasion I met the American in charge of governance and he said the problem is we Americans know how to do democracy and if only we could do it for them we'd be out of here in six months (laughs) which sort of so betrayed the problem of democracy promotion so I think this and I think the other aspect of all that is that nowadays being able to be democratic in a real substantive sense, being able to shape the conditions in which you live doesn't always mean being able to elect a government because nowadays governments don't make the important decisions that affect your lives. It may be multinational corporations, it may be Brussels, it may be the IMF, it may be the World Bank. So if you really want democracy, you need access. I think one of the reasons why the European Union has been such a successful democracy project is precisely because it goes beyond... It's not simply that that there's the attraction of money. It's also that it is a much more powerful entity it it does provide people an opportunity to affect the global terms. And and so I think if we want to think about democracy in a more serious way, and actually Daniele's done a lot on that, we have to think of it not only in a national sense. Yeah. Wait a second, you're going to get a... um,
1: Hi, my name is Cristiana. Yeah. I'm from Romania, studying here at LSE, and I I have a comment to uh, your mentioning Eastern Europe. I I think that uh, saying that uh, democracy in Eastern Europe is an outcome of, uh, of EU policy is unipolar because also Romania and other countries wanted to join NATO, and for many years this objective seemed more um, achievable than joining you and also it was uh, a broader context and also I have a, a question for you I noticed that you didn't uh, mention um, in your slide about uh, democracy, inter- democracy promotion military intervention you didn't mention Japan
3: and West Germany Japan and, uh, Germany. and West Germany
1: what
0: didn't military force help them get democratic?
3: you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to answer, Daniele. Uh, well, I mean, actually, I didn't, I, I didn't mention all the countries, but uh, I mentioned my own country. And my own country has a story which is very similar to Japan and, you know, and, and West Germany uh, in, 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 in many ways. I mean, slightly different. But, um, and my, my answer is very simple. Uh, first of all, that was uh, more than 60 years ago. Second, we shouldn't forget that in this occasion, Germany and Japan and Italy were the initiators of the war. And that made a basic difference. I mean, in, in my own city, when the Americans arrived, they were greeted they were, uh, as liberators. And, you know, actually, that's a quite an interesting story to tell. Until 1946, uh, the Allied called Italy an occupied country. And the Italians called... Uh, the allied liberators is precisely the opposite that what's happening today in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, and therefore this tells you the story that when I mean, when a country starts, a dictatorship starts a war and loses it, then of course it doesn't have any it doesn't get any longer the legitimacy to propose a new form of government, and therefore I mean, if the Winners In that case, the liberators of the occupiers propose <coughs> a, sorry, a new form of government. Uh, this is acceptable. When uh, they start uh, a war, uh, an aggressive war, uh, it's very likely that the, peop- the population perceives uh, the intervention as something which is going to be against their interests. That's, that's a very good question. Yes, yes. I was in 1991. I was against the war in Iraq. I thought that a combination of sanctions and diplomacy should have achieved the same the same aim. But in that case, once the war was started, I took position to change the regime. And in this occasion, I'm quite confident that there were internal forces which would have accepted much better a regime change suggested by, external, by an external media intervention which was not in first instance uh, wanted well, by this forces. Well
0: there's a very good example in this case actually which is northern Iraq because after the Gulf War Bush called on Iraqis to rebel against Saddam Hussein they all did uh, with horrendous consequences but in the case of northern Iraq there was an external intervention to prevent um, Saddam Hussein crushing it. And actually, northern Iraq was relatively democratic from 1991 onwards, had the West done the same. For it was 19, I think, out 17 out of 19 governorates declared themselves free, but were then crushed by Saddam Hussein, had the West done the same. I would regard that as a sort of military intervention that might support um, democracy and did indeed in northern Iraq. So my argument would be it's not always the case. It really depends on whether it's an attempt to impose it from above or whether it's actually supporting real demands on the ground. And too often, particularly with democracy promotion, it's a kind of artificially created democracy that the outsiders want to create without ever really taking into account the real wishes of uh, people themselves.
5: Yeah.
4: Hi. This this is to the
7: fellow in the orange tie. Um, you spoke about the U.S. actively preventing moderate Islamic parties in Jordan and Egypt. Um, and I might have misheard you, but you said it was because they could be against democracy or something like that. But it seems that, considering considering that those democracies have gestated longer than other democracies, and everyone else was saying, you know, um, with the exception of her, that you should spend money on helping these democracies develop. It seems in those two Middle Eastern examples, the American money coming in is more to pursue their own interests than to promote democracy. And when there's a democracy already, um, that's sort of undermining the ideals by funding. Parties to which are for an American agenda rather than the democratic agenda.
5: It's, it's a very valid point. I mean, um, and uh, I personally take issue with the American policy. To um, give some details on it, in Egypt, for example, when you speak to the um, American democracy person in Egypt, you've got a staff of 12 people, very experienced, knows her stuff, um, but she's mandated by Congress not at all to talk um, to. sorry, represents some 22% of the the people in Parliament. Uh, And just about everybody apart from 1% of the other people in Parliament are from the Statist Party, which is the the, the ruling National Democratic Party. Um, So uh, she almost sits on her hands. She hasn't really got anything to do. It's it's a bit of a farce. Um, Now, I think part of the reason that situation has arisen is because... um, of heightened sensitivities in the States which you've got to give some understanding of some sympathy of Um, misplaced though I think because um, in Egypt especially you've got to work with um, moderate Islamists Um, and I think it's wrong to paint all Islamists the same they're not that you have hardliners, um, moderates um, some people who are Islamist only in name and so forth um, and I think it's an important aspect of a successful democracy promotion effort that you actually engage with these people, including what you might call the baddies if you're being pejorative, um, because you need to engage with a wide group of people to be effective in the whole democracy. Democracy is, after all, about talking to people. That's one of the essential components of it. Um, so for that reason, I think American policy, uh, in Egypt especially, is, is um, misguided, arguably counterproductive, although that's a further point. I just say it's ineffective. And... Um, And uh, and, and yes, but I think it's a mistake to think that these countries are um, very democratic. Um, Egypt especially has some of the superficial baubles, if you like, of democracy, but it's not really democratic at all.
2: Uh, I think, in a sense, that's happened in lots of places, even in Bosnia, where they were targeting the NGOs or the parties that agreed with the Western liberal position, which creates problems. And I think it leads into this backlash that you're only targeting the people who will parrot what you want um, them to say. And I think to clarify the point, I, I'm not saying all democracy promotion is bad, but I think it has to be rethought to some extent, and perhaps going back to this argument about communicative action, that that might be far more successful, these interactions, rather than trying to just buy it from above or outside.
0: I think one of the big problems with democracy is that they are done by governments and governments always require benchmarks and targets and so you have to say we've trained so many people, we've done so many things that you can measure and the really useful things to do about democracy is actually just to have discussions and conversations <laughs> that's communicative action but that's something That governments are completely incapable of understanding. In fact, they're rather nervous about conversations. (laughs) Yeah, I've got several people now. So why don't we take two this time? And the two people at the back.
1: Yes, mine is a, a rounded question for the panel in terms of the throughout the history of the Western world and the world itself. The rich and the powerful have always imposed and will always impose their their, their rules and will, whether it's by subtle means or brutal. Does the panel believe civil society really have a choice considering that the majority have never ruled and will never be allowed to do so in terms of quotes
3: for the people, by the people?
0: Okay, and then we'll have the next question. I
4: work
8: for an organization called the John Smith Memorial Trust, which actually is one of these um, non-governmental um, NGOs that promotes democracy in the former Soviet Union. Um, so we sort of deal with this every day, and I say that from my perspective, the reason that a lot of people and governments are resistant or against um, or hostile to democracy promotion um, is that Western democracies have a tendency to impose their views, um, and they're not really willing to be self-critical. Whereas the most powerful thing they can do um, is be self-critical because then these countries can learn from our mistakes. Um, And why do you think governments are so opposed to doing this and so reluctant? Um, Because it would be a much more effective tool than just going in. and, um, As the the example used in Iraq, why can't we do it for them? I just wonder what the panel thought about that.
0: Okay, who wants to answer any of those questions? Daniele?
2: I always ask you first. Ami. I think this, the last I'll take the last question about Western democracies are not self critical. I think there's definitely that argument has been made and the question is who will make the Western democracies more self critical? And I think it has to be the citizens of the Western countries themselves. And why are they not doing it is, is the larger question. I think that has to be investigated, or do we want um, perhaps a group from Pakistan to come to the UK and say, let's engage in democracy promotion and dialogues? I think how how will Why that not. self? Why not? Out? Be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's that's the question. Who's going to lead that self-reflective debate or discussion?
3: I mean, I very briefly, because I think that there are lots of people who would like to say something, but, I mean, I do think that every time you hear about uh, um, democracy uh, development and so on, whatever it is, uh, we should think who is on one side and who is on the other side. And uh, that's also, I mean, um, I try to justify my position compared to the critical remark that Mary did earlier, you know, and often it's not clear, it's not clear, and when we have on the one side the Westerns and the other side the others, there are very good reasons to be suspicious. Now, you should try to break it in one way or the other. One way in which you can break it and was somehow successful is during the Cold War period, when uh, uh, there was an attempt by many people to create bridges between individual people, associations, and so on. Today, there's nothing like that. It's much more difficult to do that. And, uh, you know, and uh, if uh, uh, the attempts, which have been reviewed in, in, in in, in the yearbook and so on, are not so important. And therefore, I think uh, that we should also think about the institutional uh, solution. The institutional solution would imply, for example, that maybe in the United Nations General Assembly, we should give voice uh, not just to the governments uh, which sometimes uh, express dictatorships, but also to the people oppressed, and uh, that we should try to create bridges which uh, have an institutional uh, nature when these sort of things happen, maybe it's more likely that uh, the discourse on exporting democracy is not just another form uh, to impose uh, one uh, political view over other political views, uh, but is uh, a, an expression of a political view which is shared. And, for example, I mean, uh, Armin, you were a bit critical about the Russian issue of democracy in, uh, in Lisbon. I'm not. I think I'm quite happy to hear that there is a a non-traditional democratic country which has uh, the resources, the willingness to say something. I'm quite sure that's going to be propaganda, that 95% is going to be propaganda. But if we take one of the most authoritative sources about uh, freedom in the world, uh, Freedom House, uh, how much of it is propaganda? And why is generally accepted that if propaganda comes from the United States or from the United Kingdom or from other Western countries, we should accept it without a critical view, while the Russian propaganda should not be accepted? I mean, I can continue. Of course, it would be much better, which means much better to have an independent auditing of democracy. For example, carried out in Sweden or carried out in uh, I don't know in another in Malta and so on. But in the time being, uh, it's always better to have two propagandas uh, than to have one propaganda only.
5: I, I, I won't say very much because it's been said already. But um, <laughs> and, and rather than respond, um, I, I think both questions have a, a slightly de- depressing view of democracy or, or look at the more depressing side of democracy promotion. It's, it's sort of um, democracy is the opiate of the masses I suppose is the, is, the, is the common theme, which makes democracy promotion a form of drug pushing um, but I, I, I think if you think of democracy instead as, um, or one aspect of democracy promotion as instead of uh, an insistence, a condition, a rule uh, a criticism imposed barked if you like from rich people on high at poor people down low but as an activity by democracy promoters, democracy practitioners here, people that care about local issues be it keeping rubbish off the streets or attacking corruption or whatever, and then they use those same skills and tactics which can help improve the community here, to help improve the community in other countries, I think that's a good thing.
0: I want to say, as usual, a couple of things. <laughs> One is simply, I think, that there's a sort of strange tendency to think about democracy in purely national terms. I mean, I've already said this, that Somehow, nowadays, if we want to influence the conditions of our lives, we can't just do it at a national level. But because of that strange tendency, what you see is that there's a huge literature on these sort of semi-democracies, managed democracies, anno-democracies, whatever you want to call them. And their lack of democracy is always explained in terms of the legacy of authoritarianism. But actually, a lot of the problems that they experience, you're seeing in the West as well. You know, if you live in a world where you believe in a free market, actually what we have in Europe, convergence criteria, aren't so different from structural adjustment. And the difference between the conservatives, since the conservatives and and Labour can't argue about free market policies because they all have to accept them. There isn't really much difference, and we all say to hell with democracy, let's not bother about it. So I think what I'm trying to say is that actually we experience a lot of the same problems as, as people in semi-democracies, but it's never noted because we don't see it as a global problem. The other issue which is related to that is that one of the things that has always appalled me about democracy promotion is that some of the sort of worst... I think degenerative aspects of our democracy are being exported. In other words, because there isn't really a substantive debate in, the, in countries like Britain between, East and, between left and right, um, then what happens is that, you know, personalities, spin, uh, opinion polls, focus groups trying to become much, much more important than substantive democracy. And what appalls me is seeing um, people, even from the Westminster Foundation, going to new democracies and teaching them to do this kind of stuff. You know, one of the things I felt was after 89, they had some real debates. They had some real politicians but they were being taught not to be real politicians, to be manipulators of public opinion. So I think I, I very much share this view on the problem of democracy. On the other aspect that Danieli raises, I actually think I feel rather positive about networks. I mean, that's one positive side of all this. I don't think it's true. I think, yes, in the 80s there were all these links, and because you and I were involved in it and because we knew about it, Uh, we thought it was terribly exciting but one of the things we find studying the yearbook is that this happens on a scale absolutely um, that dwarfs anything that happens in the 80s and it happens not just among the nice human rights groups and the civil society groups, the lady over there who's in an NGO, you know everybody is travelling around making connections, making links but also so are the Islamists, the extreme Islamists, so are the criminal groups. The the world is consisting of these networks, and that's part of the challenge of democracy. Okay, now we've got, now this time I think I'll take, shall I take, we've got a quarter of an hour, shall I take all four, no, why don't we do two and two, so we'll take you two here.
9: Uh, I was interested, uh, uh, earlier on, one of the panel members mentioned about the uh, Gulf War in 91 and um, the invasion that started off of Iraq itself and then stopped. And there was a a reference to democracy. And I wondered uh, whether uh, the panel members thought that the reason that invasion suddenly stopped was because of the um, American uh, respect for UN resolutions um, or whether it, it was... Uh, as was said at the time as I recall uh, that its main um, ally in the region at the time from from where it was able to uh, invade Kuwait namely Saudi Arabia uh, was deeply concerned about the advent of democracy in other words the complete opposite of what uh, we've been discussing. I'd be interested in the panel's observations on that.
1: You said there are a few approaches uh, to promote democracy, but I think uh, in people in undemocratic countries they still conceive democracy as a, let's say, American brand, and that's why as a result they don't want to hear about democracy. They don't want to find out what exactly democracy means. And I wanted to ask to what extent it's an obstacle to promote democracy, and uh, are there any policies uh, being used to do that? Thank you.
0: Okay.
5: Um, In in answer to the first question, I think your account of things is very plausible. Um, (laughs) I I, I think that's an entirely plausible account of of what happened, um, in that um, America has real politique objectives as well as uh, ideological or institutional objectives, and although it adheres to the UN resolutions, it also has other um, concerns as well. So the account you were implying about what happened in 1991 I think it's entirely possible on the more um, practical issue of um, the um, if you like the tarnish which now comes with the name democracy I think it's incredibly sad I think it's very very sad indeed if you go back 50 years um, democracy um, was seen in many people as a very very good thing it's an attractive beacon Um, America too, I regard them as two separate brands by the way, but I think America has gone downhill even more Um, as a brand, as as an idea. What can be practically done in response to that? Well, one thing that we did in the the Westminster Foundation was to use different words. Um, And instead of democracy, we'd talk about representation uh, and participation, which are indeed components of democracy and they're they're part of the approach. Um, And especially you find in in the Islamic world, in the Middle East, um, it's important when that's an area where um, democracy has been tarnished the most, as a word. Um, so you can try and rebrand it. You can try and dodge the brand and use a different brand. Um, and also, given the points that have been made earlier about the fact that democracy isn't a homogenous product, we're not selling Coca-Cola. We're selling something liquidish, if you like. And there's all sorts of different liquids. Um, it's not really being that deceptive to use different words, talking about representation and participation rather than democracy, because that's in fact more descriptive, more accurate description about what you're doing. So it's a very sad thing, but you have to cope with it. in those the sort of ways, those the sort of coping mechanisms that get get evoked.
2: Just just very briefly, I think um, to the second question, in terms of I agree with Ian about that democracy is tarnished and the name, but so civil society because it became equated with NGOs, the NGOization of civil society. I think perhaps what will save this process is not to look at it as a thing or a model, but as a process and that the process should naturally evolve and not try to force it. And I think this is what we've been trying to say. And perhaps, you know, this shift from a unipolar world that emerged after the Cold War to multipolar world is one way of looking at engaging that process even further and not having the one hegemonic model only available. Do you a question?
3: Well, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, I think Ian already responded. I wanted to say something about... uh, It's very sad that uh, democracy is becoming, for some people, a dirty war. But that's precisely what happened. Uh, I've seen uh, this story before. After the the Vietnam War... uh, there was an incredible reaction about the elites in many developing countries which started to ally to the Soviet Union rather than to the Western democracies precisely because they saw the Soviet Union as more respectful of, of their independence rather than the Western world. And unfortunately something again is happening after the Iraq war which tells you quite a lot of the damage which were done by this American administration. Still, I do not want to give the word democracy, which is 25 centuries old, to Bush and to the Republican Party. I want to defend it. Good.
0: Okay. Um, The gentleman at the back. And there was another... I've seen you, but you've already had... But I
4: think there was... Was it there? Yes. But him first. Thank you. If a wealthy benefactor or to approach you and say they want to promote democracy um, outside of their own country, their own democratic country, presume, and they would like to do it from a ground level up, building up, as you've suggested, as a, rather than a top-down approach. But they wanted a consistent method of delivery, and they had two choices. One was to send promoters of democracy to other countries where it's not their practice, Uh, to promote it to the local population, or alternatively, to bring members of the other country, where it's not practiced, to their country, and show them democracy in action in the society. And the person said, I want a choice. Advise me as to which I should do, and convince me with evidence which is better. What would be your response?
1: Uh, My question is about uh, the so-called colored revolutions, and particularly Georgian one, the country where I'm coming from. Uh, Do you think that uh, what happened in Georgia, I mean the recent violent crackdown on the opposition, will become a reason for the West and for the democracy promoters to rethink the strategy, as you said, of promoting democracy? Because from from my point of view as an ordinary citizen, uh, this violent crackdown was not just one particular violent action from the government. I think it indicated the deep problems which were developing in Georgia during these four years. But unfortunately, the United States as well as the European uh, democracy promoters were kind of staying passive to criticize government or to warn them that they were clearly turning to an autocratic way of of, uh, ruling. So do you think that the West and the democratic world will um, just made a big mistake in uh, trusting Saakashvili government so much? And do you think that they they will start rethinking uh, their responsibility in terms of democracy promotion in the future? Thanks.
2: I don't know whether the West will rethink it because it was it was, and I would say some segments of the West still see Saakashvili as a democrat and they want to buy into the narrative that he is defending democracy against Russia. The problem there is that some of the opposition is more anti-Russian than Saakashvili himself and so... Locally, people do realize that the argument that Russia is funding the opposition doesn't really work. But I think what we're witnessing is a problem of, does the West really know that? Or does that narrative get beyond? Does it want to know that? And and as I said, it was such a beautiful story. It was such a beautiful narrative. The Rose Revolution, 96%, um, confidence vote, and so forth that now to lose that narrative is a bit problematic. And I think the counter narrative hasn't really come up yet. And, and that's, I think, where we are. And um, you know, one of the, the arguments of the first narrative of the color revolution was that we didn't impose democracy. The Georgian people wanted it. We just facilitated it. Now what, it, what is the, the narrative going to be? I can't really say because as I said, you, know, the, you can only go so far to discredit the, the opposition, but at some point you have to realise that that's that's not very effective.
5: Yes, I I I don't know enough about Georgia to be able to give a, an, a, an interesting response really. Um, but to the other to your policymaker, I would advise a six to one ratio split roughly. Uh, maybe it's five to one. Maybe it's ten to one. Um, the one is the people coming over to the host country. Um, it has some value. People gain something. Um, in practice, when you do these trips, and I've organized them, you spend, they spend half their time on Oxford Street, frankly. Um, I, I know that's an extremely depressing view of things, but it's a reality. Um, and also, I think they can gain some of the things that they would gain from that trip through other means, th- either through um, private visits of their own making, um, or through access to media, uh, or so forth. Far, far more important, um, and also if you don't have people on the ground, you won't pick the right people to come in the first place. Far more important is to have your democracy promoters in the field working on what to do. And I think it's, there's a, a step down beyond there as well that's got to happen. Democracy promoters shouldn't just work in the capital. They've got to they've go out beyond the capital of these countries. So often they just have an office in the capital and that's it. They think if they're within walking distance of the National Assembly and that's enough. It's not at all. Making democracy stick means getting people to understand that they can affect things in their own lives, which means, especially local politics, often in local politics you can make much more of a difference than you can at a national level, especially a quick benefit. Um, and I think helping some of the local-level democracy issues, working with local councils or local community groups, can often be far more effective than national-level democracy promotion.
3: I, I, would say that, I would say that my proportion will be precisely the opposite than Ian. And I would like to have much more people coming here than our people going there. And I will start with young people, uh, hoping that this will help. I'm not sure if it helps, because when I come here at the I often read uh, the the bulletin of former students. uh, And uh, in all the issues of the bulletin, you read... uh, uh, we are pleased to announce that our student, which was in economic class in 1967 uh, or in 1975, has become prime minister in this country or uh, minister of budget in this country or general in this country and so on. And you would expect that the LSE is a very democratic environment, has always been a very democratic environment. And then you look at the countries and you find that often they have become very top politicians in <laughs> uh, dictatorships. So you never know if it works, but at least you know, it's an attempt. <laughs> okay, we had
0: one last question, I think, from you. Was there anyone else who wanted to know? So
7: this is the last question. I'll try and live up. to that. Um, this, this is very broad. Um, it's basically in any d- democracy for it to flourish, you need an educated middle class. And I think in a lot of these countries where you're trying to promote democracy, it doesn't really work because they're not educated enough or they'll conceive it as a a Western or an American idea. So surely, um, and in an economic respect for development, democracy can be quite inefficient because you have to redistribute income assuming there's a a proper infrastructure to do that. And in China, you've been able to have such high growth despite not having a democratic society. So surely there's got to be a degree of, of waiting for sufficient development to take place and then the people to become educated enough and then enjoy democracy so it can be used to its full potential when it's ready.
0: Anyone want to answer that? I would say look at India. Um, And um, I mean, uh, what always amazes me when I go to India is how everybody discusses politics, you know, from the smallest village and, you know, all kinds of huge problems in India, of course, and inequalities and everything else, but it, there's no doubt that it's a um, bubbling democracy. So I don't, and, and the question is, what do you value most? I don't know, but I, I think these are often false choices, these choices between democracy and development. Um Anybody else want to add anything?
3: Well, I mean, of course, this is sort of the sort of thing that you read in standard courses about democratization. It started in 1959 to say that without education, income, and other conditions, you cannot have democracy. And this is, again, a very deterministic and Western view of democracy. And I think that, I mean, what is educated people? No? that's a, one basic question Is that the typical question which we use our own western way in which education is measured through a certain amount of years in, in, in schools maybe education can be something different in other words I think we should enlarge our concept of democracy and for example I mean, in, in Africa sometimes we have got some forms grassroots forms of participation eh, which are very close to what used to be democracy in ancient Athens and uh, if you understand uh, democracy in a much broader sense, uh, maybe the deterministic conditions which are still thought uh, in the courses on democratization should be some, somehow revised.
5: Anybody else? I, I, I just just a couple of very quick points, which is that, um, yes, there's something in the premise of the question, which is that education tends to lead to a more democratic society. Um, but the points that have just been made show that when you look at what those terms mean, the whole thing is can descend into enormous meaning the statement. Um, The other thing to say on that is that the scale of investment needed to promote education, the scale needed to promote democracy, are very, very different. So the the two aren't really um, either-ors. You can easily do the two together. And the argument against waiting still stands. In the long run, we're all dead, and that's what we'll get on with it.
0: Um, I would just say that what's important, as this is the theme of our yearbook, which I'd better hold up again, (laughs) is that what's important is not so much education, but communication. What's really important and what underlies democracy is the capacity to debate issues that affect you in serious, substantial ways. And that, I think, is what democracy is all about. And to have the outcome of that debate have some influence. And that leads me to, if you like, a last point uh, which, again, goes back to the global issue. Uh, some of my friends in the Balkans started to say, no domination without representation. Wouldn't the best way to make everybody democratic would be to allow us all a say in the American elections? Okay, thank you very much, everybody. We've had a nice discussion.